one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. You know, I don't even have the um, capacity in me, Stephen, to start with saying, do we have to talk about Europe? Because we're, n- we're never going to talk about anything else ever again on the New Statesman podcast. No, we are about to embark on effectively a prolonged series of divorce negotiations. I mean, it will be the biggest legal undertaking in the history of... History. The world. I mean, literally, like... The, the, yeah, the, the, the one group of, of people who you can categorically say will do very well out of this vote are lawyers. I was thinking about, about the hatred of faceless bureaucrats, and I was thinking, actually, it's been a, to be a civil servant, this is, you know, this is prime time. Anyway, we're joined by our editor, uh, Jason Cowley, who I think has had the advantage of slightly more sleep than me and Stephen, who are slightly, you know, becoming slightly delirious. Let's just first, let's just look through, because there are some patterns that you can pick out of the results, right? So... Um, Jason, it seemed to me, I mean, there will be lots of ways that people will try and slice these results, old versus young, south versus north, or, you know, big cities versus rural areas. Which of those are interesting, do you think? And and actually, which of those are productive to reflect on? Well, hi, Helen. I I actually didn't have much sleep, so I'm probably as delirious as you guys are. Um, First point, really, Scotland. Overwhelmingly for Remain. I think every district voted to remain in the in the European Union, but on low turnouts, which I thought was interesting. I mean, one there were many moments when I thought, "Oh God, this is this has gone badly wrong." Sunderland being the, uh, when that came through, and that was as a bad result. But also, turnout in Glasgow was what fifty two percent. Yeah, but some of my contacts in Scotland said actually for a long time it was considered to be England's referendum, and there wasn't the same kind of engagement in Scotland that they had. Certainly, of course, for the um, independence referendum in twenty fourteen, when they had a turnout of what eighty five percent. So. The union seems to me to be imperiled. And then you've got this really disturbing split or division or whatever we call it between what you might call metro- metropolitans mm. and, and the rest. And that, that is so, so marked and so significant, I think. But that, I mean, again, I think that's an interesting one. Cause, so when, it, when Philip Cowley did the breakdown of different types of people, they, their metropolitan liberal elite, they reckoned to be 8% of the country, didn't they? Mm. Whereas, you know, the actual Remain vote is 48%. So yeah. there is, it isn't just London do-gooders or Bristol kind of do-gooders, is it? But it no, Where it, did the other votes for Remain come from? It's actually all of the types of people who live in most big cities. Mm. I think the interesting um, known unknown, as it were is we don't really understand what it is about Birmingham, uh, the only uh, 
no offence, listeners from Sheffield and Salford, but I'm afraid Sheffield and Salford are not cities in a, a global sense. Um, they're large towns. <laughs> yeah, they, they, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, like if you if you if you if you, if you went to someone in, in yeah in, in the parts of Brian from would describe Sheffield as a city, they go, uh, "Are you sure?" Yeah, but like all of the places which we would recognise as cities, with the exception of Birmingham, um, voted to remain. So even places which are technically not cities because they don't have a cathedral, Worcester voted to leave. Um, it's my my yeah, my so, gaffes. Yeah, Southampton so, voted for leave, which is also technically a city. Te- yeah, but but Reading, but they're which not is, big is, urban centres. Yeah, right? Reading, which is in every sense actually a city, mm-hmm. voted to remain. But um, I think I mean, not no offence to Reading, and this is now Reading people, right? I see that as a sort of satellite commuter. Mm-hmm belt for london right i mean and i think that's a big i, I imagine rural berkshire has got, has got a very different voting profile to yeah but to i think the thing is is that the in in, in basically most cities a trend younger they trend to be tend to be more politically informed so i mean so it's a lot easier to canvas in yeah. a city i mean in a really brutal way you know you think that rory stewart who's got a constituency that's in the middle of nowhere in the pennines sort of talked about walking hundreds of miles at the last you know to try and actually just cover he's the ground he's got those old seat hasn't he up yeah. on the borders um up in the lake district I think, yeah much easier to come canvas stoke newington yeah but um yeah to take liverpool which is why it is not quite as simple though obviously classes as always in politics, pretty much, you know, the, the kind of sin qua non as it were. But uh, in, in Liverpool, people are very aware of what the EU has done for the city. And I think that is something about cities themselves, and they are kind of pedagogic. I think um, one of the most interesting results this morning is that is Cornwall saying we were promised this 60 million a year of EU funding. We're still getting that right, mm-hmm. despite having voted by, I think, 56% in favour of, of leave. I mean, you know, I never heard that promise made explicitly by the Leave campaign. Perhaps they did in targeted advertising to to Cornish people themselves. But I, there is a, a slight sense this morning of people didn't think the kind of people who some of the kind of people who voted for Leave didn't think they're the kind of people whose whose voices get taken seriously. They they are not. I think I think protest vote is over egging it. But there there is does seem to be a slight element of surprise that it's actually happened amongst some. Yes. People. Also, a lot of people were mobilised to vote because they feel deeply distressed, disaffected, whatever the, whatever the word is. I mean. The turnout was significant in many what you might call traditional working class Labour towns, you know, the small towns of England. Huge votes for out, defying, like, defying the party's recommendations, yeah. defying their leader. I mean, extraordinary results in the northeast of England, the east coast, the Midlands. Yeah, and in in Harlow, your um, my old place, your yeah. old place, where it was very. I mean, those. But that's no surprise. Those no, but but the turnouts I thought was were extraordinary in some of those areas. Turnouts of seventy five percent. Yes, Harlow, plus. Basildon, um, Brentwood, all of these Essex and Kent satellite towns. So the most uh, the most Brexity place in Britain is Boston in Lincolnshire, which also has I think the highest rate of immigration from Eastern Europe. The most Remain place uh, is unsurprisingly Gibraltar, where I think something like 93 people, I think it was one of those ones like that Falklands referendum, where you could probably kind of get all those people in a in a large boat or something. Um, let's just talk a bit about Wales, Stephen, which I know is a country that you're interested in. Uh, I think that what that result does in Wales, which is, you know, so seven UKIP um, assembly members at the last yeah. election, yeah, and actually, not a you know, Labour won it at the general election. Not a great result for for Remain there. Yeah, it was a a devastating vote for Remain. Really, I mean, so the referendum was won and lost through 
um, well, I mean, you, 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 yeah, kind of. It, but it was if you look at somewhere where it was, it was lost. It was probably lost in Wales, uh, in that it was the place where that city bonus was slightly weaker for Remain. It was the place where I know I think the Vale of Glamorgan is the only kind of fairly leafy place and actually behaved like a leafy place outside of of Wales. And as I have said before on this podcast, there has been a long-standing building up of Eurosceptic and anti-immigration sentiment in Wales, including places like Ebbvale, where there are literally, where, you know, when I visited, I increased by 100% the minority uh, population there. So places where immigration is not really something which actually is happening. But it is a testament to the um, political skill of Harwin Jones. A lot of people in the Labour Party were very angry about his decision not to start canvassing for the referendum until after... The May elections. The May elections. Personally, to be honest, I think Brexit is a far bigger catastrophe for everyone in Welsh Britain, hill farmers. But particularly, and, and, you know, Welsh hill farmers, people in, uh, you know, economically yeah, deprived rural areas. But in terms of, of winning those assembly seats, that was probably the right call. Yeah, but if it's a catastrophe, why don't the people perceive it as being so... Why, have so, why a, have so many of them voted, if, if you're to be believed, against their own interests? Well, 11 what's million it, people it? voted for, for failed austerity twice in a row. I mean, Margaret, yeah, the Conservatives won four elections that's, on that, the bounce in the... In the I mean, that's I mean, quite Olympian dismissal of all of, these, all of these people who feel utterly let down, disenchanted. The status quo is not working for them. That's what they think. And this is what I the mean, Labour Party has fundamentally misunderstood for too long. I think that group of people does exist. I mean, but I, also, ultimately, in I... terms of misunderstanding per- people, I'm going to like do a little song and dance of being the only person in this office who consistently said that I thought that Britain's EU membership was in trouble. So Actually, apart from last week's apart podcast, from last week's so podcast, podcast when I allowed everyone else's whatever to go well, me thought, you know, I thought the camera had, uh, had steadied the ship and people had, were not feeling that, you know, they'd felt there was a period of, of, of unpleasant uh, economic times and they felt they were coming out of that and I thought that would have essentially triumphed over it. But I think, Jason, I think those people do exist and actually I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy with them. I have less sympathy with older, comfortable middle-class people who have who have voted leave for reasons, you know, actually we've seen a lot of people in areas without high immigration who are, you know, who don't live in places that are, I think if you live in Boston, in Lincolnshire, then yes, actually on, you know, every day you're seeing the effects of, of high immigration on your town, but I think that's that's only a chunk of the... the no, I agree vote. with you. I feel, I feel profoundly sorry for millennials, young people aged sort of 18 to 24, 26, overwhelmingly voted for Remain, and people much older than them, the baby boomers who have benefited from the welfare state, free education, house price inflation, they turn around and say, we're out. Meanwhile, their children and their grandchildren are left behind in what may turn out to be a really peculiar rump state. And, and, and going to universities that now will have much more difficulty attracting staff from the rest of the EU, mm. um, you know, that places that are doing science research that will now have far more difficulty getting funding because you need to do cross-EU Oh, projects. but we'll have the Australian-based point system, Helen. <laughs> Uh, everything well, Hallelujah. which I think George points out means that Australia actually has more immigration per capita than us, and additionally to that, has an phenomenally cruel and inhumane. I mean, anyone who would point to that system as one to model is 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 pointing to wanting people turned back in boats and yeah. wanting kept in camps. I, as you know, I'm a Eurosceptic. I'm, I was never an outer, but look at look at the consequences today: uh, a collapsing pound, markets in in turmoil, Joe Adams coming out calling for a united Ireland. 
Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon calling for a second independence referendum, resignation of the Prime Minister, an attempt to topple the Labour leader. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. Yeah, I think it's been... Well, that's the one country that we... Well, we, we, you touched a little bit on, on Ireland and Northern Ireland there. That's something that we had in the magazine and Gordon Brown's guest at it, about the number of people who are Irish citizens, uh, half a million of them who are living in the UK. Their status is now uncertain. Equally, the the concept of... I don't know, Stephen, you wrote about this, of now a land border between somewhere that might very well be a free movement area and somewhere in Northern Ireland that we we just don't know. We don't know or not we're, what we're going to negotiate about that for, for the first time. Yes, particularly because... One of the things that Vote Leave did was tactically, of course, fairly astute, which was to major on immigration. But ultimately, the version of Brexit where you control your borders is also the most economically disastrous because you lose access to the single market. And in terms of the maintenance of the peace protests, peace process in uh, in Ireland, it is the most catastrophic because it throws the uh, Common Travel Agreement into doubt, which is part of the Lisbon Treaty, you, you, how could you have a, you, you then presumably do have to have a fairly firm land border between the two to truly have border control, or you effectively cut Northern Ireland off from the United Kingdom. Yeah, and the same thing with an independent Scotland, right? If that's then is part of a free movement zone, then, you know, we have to rebuild Adrian's Wall. It seems it seems astonishing that, that, that those kind of things got so little airtime during the um, campaign. Jason, I know you've always been interested in England and Englishness. This, well, like you say, there are people in Scotland who felt this was England's referendum. The, the end result of this could be basically just England and Wales being what's left of the UK, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, particularly if um, Scotland has that second referendum, and if they do, I expect it to be a, a vote for independence this time round. And I, I personally, as a unionist, and I would find it very hard to say to Scotland, well, you've got to stay within the United Kingdom when you've been dragged out of the European Union against your wishes. I mean, very difficult to say that. And accept Tory governments that and you accept, don't vote for. And, and also Tory governments of a particularly far-right ideological kind um, in alliance with Nigel Farage's UKIP. I mean, that's that's not a David Cameron, One Nation Conservative Party. So the English question, you know, who are the English? What do they want? Um, this is a, a nation of more than 50 million people, um, an ancient nation. And one always one argument has always been that the English or Englishness is somehow lost in or coterminous with Britishness. And what would it be to stand apart from... Um, the rest of the United Kingdom, and that's that's something we're going to be exploring, obviously, in in, in the weeks ahead. I and find and is, the, is this an eruption of English nationalism? That well, we're, that's that what I find. Saying? I find difficult about it. I think when you say British, to me, that doesn't have the imp- the, the the sort of racial implications. I feel I feel Englishness is really coded as white. I don't think so. I think I think there have been attempts to code Englishness as white. I mean, one saw that particularly in the eighties with football hooligan and football hooligans and NF racist, but I don't think so. Englandishness is very porous and open, as indeed is Britishness, and there's no reason why it can't be a, a civic identity rather than a, something um, rooted in blood and soil. Um, let's quickly turn to the, the kind of party ramifications. Um, first of all, so Cameron has set out his timetable for departure. He will be gone by the October Tory party conference. Um, Stephen, is your sense that anyone can stop Boris Johnson? Um... Hostage to fortune here because I have spoken to maybe five Conservative MPs since it happened, most of whom were very much from the Remain side, so we kind of talked about uh, Britain's fraught future rather than the Conservative Party's uh, fraught future. But my instinct is no, because um, you have a group of Conservative MPs who had kind of banked on the Osborne meal ticket and thought that was their path to prosperity. 
Osborne is obviously politically dead. He's like a headless chicken. He might still be running, but um, but but yeah, the the body is is dead. Um, <laughs> and the uh, but you know those MPs are going to look for a safe haven, rather like the uh, currency markets are right now with the pound, and um, and their safe haven is probably going to be Boris. He he looks inevitable. It may even be um, that Theresa May doesn't challenge him, because why would you? The Conservatives have done this before. It feels a lot like Suez. You had an old Etonian prime minister, a foreign policy disaster that weakened Britain forever. Forever. I mean, that's what that was. We are talking about a permanent diminution of Britain's internal prosperity and its ability to influence climate change and global security overseas forever. Um, And what Macmillan did is he basically kind of pretended that nothing had happened then Britain could still be great. And he was able to revitalise the Conservative Party for a little while. And you could see Boris Johnson today in his, his speech tr- kind of trying to do the same trick. Which is, but even if it is, you know, it goes to the membership, and which, because the, the system that the Tories use, they the MPs select two candidates go to the membership. That means you're going to have a Prime Minister chosen by what? Was it 0.25% of the electorate? Yeah, it's uh, 150,000 people at the last count. And without wishing to be cruel about the age profile of the average Tory membership... The, They're not in the first flush of youth. Yeah, they? I mean, the, the strong chance is, is since the last time we had an opportunity to count them all, and some of them are in fact now dead. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we are talking about a vanishingly small number of I think people. I think the average age, was 60, average age was 68. Yeah, but we've had... Um, it's... it's there ought to be a rule that when you have a change of um, prime minister within an existing parliamentary term, that you have a general election automatically. It but, but it doesn't. Gordon I mean, Brown, wouldn't it? Gordon Brown, um, Jim Callaghan, mm. Douglas Home, and so on, so on and so forth. There are many, there are many examples of, of that happening before. I think he will be challenged. Um, I'm not sure he can be stopped. If he gets to the final two, he wins in the membership. But will, Stephen, do you think someone like um, Stephen Crabb could emerge as a potential cha- challenger? No. No. Amber Rudd? Uh, no, just, there's, there's, so there's Theresa May or bust. Yeah, that's thing. There just isn't time. And also, if you're one of that younger generation, I mean, maybe if you're Amber Rudd because you've gone for him, you are a passionate pro-European. Possibly, you don't want to serve under Boris under any circumstances. You decide, you know, if you're going to go down, you might as well go down yeah. in flames. But why would you? You know, if you're Stephen Crabb, you're young, you're you you know you, you you're Welsh. You've built up you know a, a network of friendly journalists, and you have supporters in the parliamentary party. Why would you blow your shot by being crushed by Boris Johnson? You know as well. This is also the question about whether or not you want to be the one who, in the same way that being the post-crash prime minister, whoever had come in in 2010 would have probably ended up hated. Do you want to be the post-Brexit prime minister? Who I mean, this is going to be a really unpleasant, turbulent period in which Britain, as you say, is going to get materially poorer right it's going to grow Mm. more slowly than it would have been there might very well be a recession there may very well be unemployment going up i mean to yeah to be honest i mean i'm not remotely surprised that cameron resigned so quickly i mean if if i was in his position i think my strong urge would be to turn to the brexiteers and go well you've broke it you've bought it i also think it actually is probably good for democratic norms that the the prospectus and vote leave has sold the country is not something you can get from the eu I think it's good, it's very important that vote leave are the people who are negotiating with the EU. Because they have to be, if, when the electorate does want to punish someone, and my instinct is they will want to punish someone, I think it's important that actually the people they can punish 
are other there. people who did it and they wanted it. Other yeah. than, otherwise, you have that resentment kind of... Um... Although that won't stop Nigel Farage, will really, Because he'll still be outside of the process, gleefully pointing out all the problems with it. Um, let's turn to Labour, Jason. Uh, as we're recording this, we know that there's been a motion of no confidence tabled with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, that will go to the PLP meeting on Monday. They will then do a straight yes-no. Do you have confidence in Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader? From your sense, is... You know, it, is that curtains for him, or does he just he does he kind of you know shake him off and stagger on? First of all, will they will they at the PLP vote no? They have no confidence in him. I expect they they will say that it will be a no. Wouldn't surprise me though if he fought on. He's got enormous um, support among the among the members, and he knows that. And indeed, a recent poll showed he's more popular now than he was when he he won the leadership last year so why wouldn't he stand his ground and and take on whoever rises to challenge him Stephen do you think that um, both Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn's rather lacklustre campaigning for it or rather half-hearted campaigning for it will have changed how Labour members feel about him because I have heard people who are now who were much friendlier to him who care about Europe and feel that he didn't put his hand to the oar or do you think that they forgive him almost anything I think yes and no I think, based on the very unscientific metric, and if you've emailed me about coming to talk to your CLP and I haven't got back to you, I'm sorry, I'm just disorganised, but please do email me again, because you're how I... But my very unscientific metric of talking to activists out in the country, my impression is that there are people who would like not Corbyn, right? They would like... They, they think there are competence problems there. They think there are delivery problems there. They may think there is baggage in terms of his 30 years of association. But just as there were a a large chunk of people who didn't want Cameron, but they looked at Ed Miliband and they went, actually, I think I'll stick with Cameron, I don't think that there is a politician in the parliamentary party who is more compelling to Labour activists than Jeremy Corbyn. Well, that's... um, (laughs) That is, I I think, a a sober view of it. Um, Finally, Jason, just to say, you know, what do you think is the long term? You know, where do you see the country in five years' time? I think it's going to be a a deeply turbulent few years, um, possibly a recession. Um, I think we may well see the end of the United Kingdom. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon will trigger a a second Scottish referendum. And then I think we'll be in a a distinctly different world from the one we are today. I think it's, it's momentous and alarming. Well, we will, the one thing that is certain in an uncertain world is that the New States podcast will be back next week. Um, thank you for joining us, Jason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.